And as I said those lines, I'm suddenly aware that I could be having this conversation with Bill Shatner in terms of our usefulness in Star Trek. I realized then that the masks had slipped away and Spock and Nimoy were talking to Kirk and Shatner. Actor Leonard Nimoy. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Many people may think that Leonard Nimoy's career started with Star Trek, but no, he would, he'd been a serious actor for a number of years before that, even appearing in other science fiction shows, as you're about to hear in this interview. But of course, it was Star Trek that propelled him not just to fame, but to icon status. His portrayal of the half-human, half-Vulcan Mr. Spock practically launched a cottage industry. Did you ever have those pointed ears? The arched eyebrow, the fascinating, the Vulcan mind meld. It was all part of the Mr. Spock mystique created by Leonard Nimoy. Now, in 1975, Nimoy wrote a book called I Am Not Spock. Fast forward 20 years to 1995 when I interviewed him for another book he'd written called I am Spock. And as you're about to hear, there's a reason for his change of heart. So here now from 1995, Leonard Nimoy. I did the other book 20 years ago. Uh, it was called I Am Not Spock. It was a, a gigantic, gigantic mistake, which I talk about in this book. I was totally naive about what the impact of that negative title would be. The publishers warned me against the title, but for economic reasons. They said books with negative titles don't sell well, and I thought they were wrong. I said, what about Gone with the Wind? And they acknowledged that, that I had a point, and they said, look, we'll call the book whatever you want, and uh, it's your book. I had written a chapter called I Am Not Spock, and it was a discussion of the differences between an actor and the character he portrays and yet the kind of crossover of identity that takes place in public perception. We know that there's no person called Peter Falk, there's a person called Columbo. You know? <laughs> so, and I do that myself. It's, a, it's a sh kind of a shortcut in language that we use when we're making reference to some actor, and very often you don't remember his name. Uh, um, Columbo, you know who I'm talking about. Of course we do. Um, so I was using that as a kind of a frame of reference for a chapter in the book and discussing the differences between myself and Spock and, and how what of me found its way into the character and what from the character I had adapted into my own personal life. And yet there are severe differences. I grew up in Boston. Spock did not. So right away we start with the difference, you know. Um, in any case, uh, the, the title was seen as a rejection of the character. It was seen as, get away from me with this Star Trek business, I don't want to hear about it. And that's not what it was at all. And um, it's taken me 20 years of thought and experience with Star Trek and with Spock to come to the point where I could do a book called I Am Spock and have a, and have a foundation for that title. And the foundation came for me in a scene that I played with Bill Shatner in our final work together in Star Trek VI, a scene in which Spock is somewhat disillusioned and he's saying to Captain Kirk in character, is it possible, is it possible that we two, you and I, have grown so old and so inflexible that we have outlived our usefulness? And he's talking about their usefulness in Starfleet. And as I said those lines, I, I'm suddenly aware 
that I could be having this conversation with Bill Shatner in terms of our usefulness in Star Trek. And I realized then that the masks had slipped away and, and Spock and Nimoy were talking to Kirk and Shatner. And I thought, I think I have, I have ground to stand on to say, I am Spock and here comes the book. <laughs> well, there is that paradox, that irony that you work so hard as a young actor to achieve a role for which you will be remembered mm-hmm. for time immemorial. And mm-hmm. once you've got it, yeah. then you're stuck with being Gilligan or, or, or Jed Clampett or, exactly. or whoever your character is because you've done it so well. Exactly. And, and uh, I, I take it as, a, as an affirmation. I, I take it as a, as a, uh, a positive uh, experience. The, the, the issue of time Typecasting uh, has been bandied about in the press for many, many years, and, and in my industry, is this person or is this person not typecast? And, and it's usually it usually has a negative connotation. It usually means you can only play certain roles, but it also has a very positive connotation, which means that you are useful in certain roles. And if you are not typecastable, it can be difficult for the the casting people, directors, producers, and casting people, to figure out how to make use of you. And if they cannot figure out how to make use of you, you don't work. So for 15 years, I was a freelance actor uh, and somewhat typecast, but in a, a kind of a negative way. I played a lot of, of villains. I played a lot of people who did nasty things to other people. Until just prior to Star Trek, I was beginning to get some positive roles to play. And then along came Spock, and my whole life changed. Of course, the, 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 I guess the extreme of being typecast is to be the one who defines the type of role. That's something else again. I, I, I had had experiences playing aliens before Spock. I played my first alien character in a science fiction serial called, this was before television, in 1951, called uh, Zombies of the Stratosphere. And uh, it was not a, it, it was not as bad as the title would suggest. <laughs> I've looked at it recently. It's available on videotape. This was one of those serials that they used to show on Saturday afternoons at the at, the, at your local movie house. You would see two movies, and then you'd see a fifteen minute episode of a Lone Ranger serial or a Buck Rogers serial. And this one was called Zombie of the Stratosphere, and I was in it. Uh, it was work, and I was happy to get it. And I played a, a character from another planet who came with a couple of buddies to take over Earth. You know, we had a couple of Colt revolvers and a pickup truck, and when, I don't know how we're going to manage it, but we had bad intentions. <laughs> In any case, um, when Spock came along, it was not my first alien, but I think it was the most interesting alien I'd ever been given to play. He was a complex character, and therefore an interesting challenge for an actor, half human, half Vulcan. But we often forget that the, the Spock we see in well into the first season and into the second and third seasons is not the Spock that was there on day one no. uh, when, when you started. It was, it was not yet exactly clear how what the character was supposed to be. Not terribly clearly defined yet by the writing or by me, for that matter. It took me a little time to find the guy. And... Uh, I do remember one very, very important moment when uh, we were shooting the first episode. We, we had done two pilots by this time, and I had managed to stumble through as Spock. But now we, would, we, were, we were sold, going on the air as a series. And uh, we were shooting the first episode. And uh, it was directed by uh, a man who I had known previously and worked for previously, a director named Joe Sargent, who was staging a scene on the bridge of the Enterprise where we're, there's chaos because there's this terrible... Um, uh, adversary confronting us out there and everybody on the bridge is rushing about doing what they do. The captain is yelling orders and people are responding, I serve at three degrees helm and aft thrusters and, and fire the photon torpedoes and, and as Spock I had one word written 
the word was to look at the screen and look at this, this object out there and say the word fascinating. Caught up in the adrenaline of the entire scene with everybody else, I said, fascinating. And the director, Joe Sargent, wisely said to me, don't join with the rest in their, in their uh, rush to excitement. Be the curious scientist. Find it interesting. Find it uh, sort of delicious to study this thing. And I learned to say, fascinating. And the character suddenly appeared. And I thought, aha, <laughs> I think I've just found my own ground to stand on here. Where did the one arched eyebrow come from? Actually, it was a natural response to a moment. Uh, something said to me by someone, either McCoy or Kirk or someone. And uh, that was my natural response. It was something that I didn't realize that I had learned to do myself over time. Uh, I, I raised the, the eyebrow and then realized when I saw it and when people commented on it that I had found a small gesture which played against a rather impassive face made a very large comment. <laughs> I, I read somewhere that Elizabeth Montgomery found the little tweet, twitch of her nose the yeah. same way, kind of accidentally. <laughs> <laughs> Probably true. And it true. becomes one of those trademark things. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and, the, and then the salute, which I've been practicing for weeks now with the, with the, the split yeah. finger. I've heard a story about this. Maybe you can confirm or deny this. I'm told that they wanted to find something that you could do that DeForest Kelly could not. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's apocryphal. That's not really true. <laughs> Not true. There are some things that I can do that D. Kelly cannot, but not a lot. D. Kelly is D. Kelly is the sly fox who uh, who pretty much knows precisely what he's doing at all times, but can sometimes play the bumbler extremely well. You know, he's the country boy who makes you feel that that uh, if you're a city slicker, you can take advantage of him. You really can't. You really can't. He's much, a great guy. Much has been written by by former cast members, by by journalists, uh, by people, just Star Trek fans, on what the magic of the series was. Was it the casting? Yeah. Was it the writing? Was it the vision? Was it Gene Roddenberry? If what? you could, uh, if you could make a list and design it and package it, you could reproduce it, which is not that easy. Obviously, it, you you can't do that. There is a certain amount of chemistry involved and an alchemy involved that, where things either come together or they don't, and they did in our case. But I do believe that a lot of the longevity, a lot of the desirability of the show has to do with the kind of social structure in which Star Trek takes place, in which it exists. It's, it, it's a, a moral society in which politics and backstabbing have very little, if any place at all. There is very little of rhetoric. There is reality. You can believe what people say and you can count on it, uh, at least if, if you're on the good guy side. We all, uh, we all are representative of, of a particular uh, function. Uh, all of us in the show are professionals. The, the characters that we portray are professional people. It is a meritocracy. People have been given equal opportunity and have risen to the point where they can do the job best and therefore they have the job. They've made the investment in, in learning their craft and learning their profession. There's mutual respect, uh, regardless of shape, size, color, race, ethnicity, gender, whatever. There's mutual respect. There's no question about whether you should be here doing this job with me or whether I should have your job or whatever. No, that's gone. We've, 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 we've passed that point in, in human history, and we've come to a point where we really are in a, in a wonderful meritocracy. And, and as Shakespeare would have said, a consummation devoutly to be wished. I think people would, would enjoy living in that kind of a structure. So people identify with us. They say, yes, I'd like to live in the Star Trek world. And how many times I have wished for that Vulcan mind meld. <laughs> Put my that, hand to someone's yeah. head. And, <laughs> and know what they're thinking? 
Yeah, and and the Vulcan neck pinch, of course. <laughs> kids, kids come to me and say, "Teach me how to do that." I want to knock my brother unconscious. <laughs> over the years, I mean, you allude to this in the book, dude. Over the years, do you tire of people staring at you? Of people asking you to say fascinating? People asking you for a little piece of you that that may or may not be you? I find it very flattering. There are times when I do need to run away and hide, and and I'm, I have ways and places to do that, but I. I sincerely find it flattering when people yell Spock on the street. I gladly turn my head and, and wave back. When people show me the Vulcan symbol as I'm walking down the street, as I just uh, this morning got from a bus driver driving by, waving at me with the Vulcan symbol, I wave right back. I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to see it. It delights me. Uh, it has to do with success and acceptance, and that's a very good thing in, in, in the world in which I work and, and live. Uh, my privacy is terribly important to me, and I find ways to... to, to to deal with that and, and to go to that when I need to. But the, uh, the uh, public acceptance, public awareness is very, uh, very rewarding. What do you suppose you would have gone on to become known for, if not for Star Trek? I don't have the slightest idea. Uh, I've been so involved with Star Trek for 30 years that I, I only thank my lucky stars that it happened to me. I, I think I probably, I, I should not say I don't have any idea, I was actually leaning towards moving into a directing career before Star Trek sold and went on the air. And when it did happen, I put all of that aside and just forgot about it for many years and then finally returned to it with directing a couple of the Star Trek movies. Oh, we've seen your name on other movies as well. After I did uh, Star Trek 3 and 4, directed them, I was invited to direct Three Men and a Baby, which I did. I had a wonderful time. We had an enormous success. I was, uh, I consider myself, again, a very lucky guy. I had three very talented people, Tom Selleck, Ted Danson, Steve Gutenberg, a miraculous baby, a couple of wonderful writers, Cruikshank and Orr, who wrote us a wonderful script, a great concept devised by a French lady named Colleen Soreau, who did the original French version of the film. And uh, I, I made a contribution, but, but uh, I was helped a lot, and, and uh, the movie was an enormous success. I did not want to do the sequel. I didn't care that much for the concept when it was presented to me, the three men and a little lady. I didn't think it measured up to the same kind of wry uh, cleverness that we had in the original film, and I thought I'd, I'd let that one go. I, I did make another movie called The Good Mother, which I was very proud of, but which had a very controversial kind of place in, in, the, uh, in the audience's world. Uh, it was a, it's an unfortunate story about a lady who loses custody of her, of her child because we discover in her case society condemns the idea of sexuality in a woman who's a mother and uh, I think it was a very interesting comment about about that aspect of our society and beautifully played by uh, Diane Keaton and Liam Neeson as her boyfriend um Sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. Well, so much seems to, as an observer, as a lifelong observer of television and movies, it strikes me that so often it is just, maybe it's almost an accident of, of casting, of writing, of, mm. of directing, of, mm -hmm. of things that just fall. I mean, so much is not an accident, but uh, someone's, you know, you look at who could have gotten a role and who actually got it, or who could have directed and who actually directed, or uh, yeah. the scene that was supposed to be one way and it turned out another way and they liked that better. And, yeah. The danger. I think you're absolutely right. The danger is in taking it personally and assuming that you are wonderful because your work gains acceptance or in assuming that there's something 
wrong with you because your work doesn't gain acceptance at a, in a particular time or situation. That's the danger. You can't take it personally. You go. You, you do your best. You learn to do the best work you possibly can. You train yourself. You study and you prepare for the moments when you are on the line and delivering your goods as you see it today. And if you happen to be in touch with the in, in alignment with the stars and, and the things fall into place for you, you have a hit. And if you don't, you don't have a hit and you move on to the next project. You can't take it personally. There are very, very, very talented people uh, who do what I do, uh, who do what other directors and actors do, who never achieve great popularity or great success simply because things don't align themselves for them in one way or another. They don't hit, as you say, that one vehicle where things come together, the right role or whatever. In many cases, a person gets a great role because someone else has rejected it. Uh, there, I'm sure there have been cases for me where I have inherited a project because someone else rejected it, and I and I come out the winner in the case. And somebody looks back and says, "Oh, gee, I should have done that because look what happened. He did it, and it worked." You know, uh, you can't second guess these things. You go about your business professionally and hope for the best. Uh, did I tell you about the lady in the elevator that recognized me last week? That's, no. I want to tell you the story. Uh, it's apropos of this book. Um, I had not yet left Los Angeles. I was about to start out on this promotion tour for I Am Spock. And uh, I stepped into an elevator in Beverly Hills uh, in an office building, and a lady recognized me. And she said, oh, hello, and then rushed to say, I know, I know, I know, you're not Spock. And I said, well, (laughs) the fact is today, I am. (laughs) Leonard Nimoy died in 2015. He was 83. Now you can find easy Amazon links to Leonard Nimoy's books, as well as the Star Trek series on DVD, at HeardEverything.com. Have you subscribed yet to Now I've Heard Everything? We post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. If there's one that you can't find us on, let me know. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, we'll mark Martin Luther King Jr. Day with my 1992 interview with a woman who knew him well because she, indirectly, helped propel him to prominence. My 1992 interview with Rosa Parks. He was very youthful, and I'm surprised that such a young person was the pastor of that church in Montgomery. And he was quite friendly, and he was very eloquent. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.